0: This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. My name's Clay Wirestone. In today's show, we bring you up to date with the happenings of the month and a half since the New Hampshire primary. Yes, the candidates may not be traipsing across our state, but there's all sorts of political action here and now. My name's Clay Wirestone, I'm a writer and an editor here at The Monitor, and I am joined for this month's special edition of the Political Monitor podcast with John Van Fleet, the Monitor's Managing Editor. Hi, John. Hello, Clay. So it's been a crazy month and a half. Has it been that long? It has been possibly longer. It was, uh, I believe, our last podcast in this series was the Thursday after the primary in New Hampshire here, which was February 9th. And since then, so much has happened. It's true. We've said goodbye to Jeb. We've said goodbye to little Marco Rubio. Um, So, you know, so lots of candidates have dropped out, and at least on the Republican side now, we have a um, a, a basically a two-man race between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump.
1: I'm not sure John Kasich would agree with that.
0: Well, John Kasich has, has managed to win a state, However, that is still singular mm-hmm. right now. Um, so and and after winning uh, so by such convincing <clears throat> margins here, Bernie Sanders has struggled much more on the Democratic side. Hillary Clinton has um, prevailed in a lot of the larger contests and has built a pretty substantial delegate lead. Even aside from her super delegates, um, so that 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 contest seems to be winding down a bit, although Bernie Sanders has said he will continue to run through the, through the convention. Mm-hmm. So, John, what have you been uh, following this this time? Obviously, we haven't been you know, looking after the primary as much, so what have you been looking at?
1: Well, before I answer that question, Clay... Yes, um,
0: John. I
1: uh, have a little anecdote. The other night, I was at the Capitol Center for the Arts... And it was the middle, it was uh, Concord, music in Concord schools. And so I, I attended the concert, I had a couple of kids playing in the concert. And uh, afterwards, trying to collect a wayward child, I had someone walk up to me and said, hey, John. And I was like, hey, I said, do you miss the primary? And I my response was, no, not really. And he said, Well, you guys did a great job. Thanks for all that you do. So then he left, and I thought about my response, and I felt sad. I felt like my response wasn't quite accurate. While the pressure of the primary is relieving, is relieved, it's not entirely accurate to say, I don't miss it. I do miss the focus and purpose that we had leading up to the primary. And um, it is and was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Do I want to do it every day? Do I want to do it every year? Maybe not. Um, It was nice to have a little uh, breather. But on the other hand, this is democracy in America.
0: Mm -hmm. If you you know we we essentially are in primary mode for almost a year you know before before it happens i look back at 2015 and i'm and i think you know really we started you know we started doing pre-primary reporting in you know april really mm-hmm. that's when some of the first events were mm-hmm. and you know if you think about it you know april to through february i mean that's that's virtually a year and um I mean, that's just a long time. It's a, it's a very sustained process, and it only escalates as the months go by. And despite all of that, many
1: of the forecasts for how this election was going to go are playing out. That the Republicans would be unable to put up a challenger strong enough to challenge, to take on Hillary Clinton... Mm-hmm. And that she had all she had to do was follow the yellow brick road to the presidency.
0: Well, I mean, we haven't had that uh, vote yet. You know, certainly, certainly, I, I'm sure that that many Democrats feel like, um, you know, Donald Trump is a is a gift to them, um, given his his outrageous statements. I mean, we'll we'll see how much of a gift that ends up being or not. For, uh, for the for Democrats um you know I I what I keep thinking about is all the uh, Republican commenters who talked about what a banner uh, election this was going to be and all of the highly qualified candidates who were in the race and you know some of these highly qualified candidates didn't even make it to the New Hampshire primary you know somebody like Scott Walker for instance who just burned through too much cash and had to had to drop out and, you know even people who'd made big, run-ups to, you know, kind of try to re- revamp the party like Rand Paul, you know, he he didn't make it to New Hampshire either. Everyone, you know, hailed all of these these candidates and kind of dismissed the fact that Donald Trump started to lead in the polls last summer, but you know, he started to lead in the polls and he's he hasn't stopped so far. And so, it
1: isn't it is a convenient storyline to write about or talk about the Donald Trump Is he really a conservative versus Ted Cruz, the true conservative? And therefore, it makes the race a little more sexy, a little more yin and yang. But I brought up Kasich in a different way. He's one of those highly qualified candidates from a resume perspective. Absolutely. He's probably one of the strongest, brightest stars that the Republicans had. And yet, it's still a Ted Cruz versus donald trump storyline which to me is aggravating
0: if republic if the anti-trump forces in the republican party which you can call the establishment quote unquote if they want to have any hope of having someone else you know besides trump as their nominee they essentially have to go with whatever candidate has won the second most number of contests you know, because, it, you know, if you go to the convention and this is going to require some delegates probably switching over or or, or ch- changing their allegiances. You know, it's easier to persuade people to go over to the guy who's just, you know, a few dozen delegates behind your guy as opposed to the guy who's several hundred delegates behind your guy. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's what we're seeing, although, you know, certainly I think very few people would would have at this point last year thought that the ideological shape of the Republican race was going to be, you know, Ted Cruz as the establishment figurehead and, you know, Donald Trump as the as the people's choice. That being said, the primary's over here in New Hampshire. Sure is. We, we have other things on our minds. Do we? Uh, well, that's what I'm given yes. to believe.
1: Yes. You've been doing some good work lately on fact-checking, Statements made about New Hampshire politics.
0: Well, and some of these are kind of left over from the primary, too. Well, they're relative,
1: too. They're mm-hmm. relative to New Hampshire politics. But going back a few weeks um, to Maggie Hassan's State of the State address, she said that drug deaths were the second leading cause of death in New Hampshire. Drug overdoses. Mm-hmm. And Allie Morris checked that. Um, and it turned out to be entirely not true.
0: Well, she was looking. the The governor had been looking at some sort of literature that had like eliminated all of the usual causes of death.
1: Yes, it was trying to highlight how fast it's been growing, is what I'm. I, I believe, and so it wasn't a full list of of here are the leading causes. It was like here's where drug over- overdoses are relative to the next highest. Right. And so it. this was their defense that it looked like it was second highest. But really, when you talk to the New Hampshire Medical Examiner and look at the actual causes of death from as reported to the CDC, it's nowhere close to leading. Right. The well, leading causes of death are always, you know, cancer, heart disease. Mm-hmm. And then there's your checks. You took mm-hmm. on, uh, you looked at statements made by the New Hampshire Republican Party and its chairwoman Jennifer Horn.
0: Right. So well the the first one was a um a somewhat tongue in cheek online petition that the State Republican Party started trying to urge the Democrats to have their superdelegates support Bernie Sanders at the eventual Democratic convention given that Bernie Sanders had won such a large percentage point victory here in the state. Um, and in their petition, they basically suggested that the vote of one superdelegate was worth the uh, votes of 10,000 uh, voters in the Democratic primary.
1: But the term they used was grassroots activists. Right,
0: which is the kind of the exaggerated part of this. Um, by, by grassroots activists, they simply meant people who took a Democratic ballot mm-hmm. in the primary, which seems a little, uh, a little uh, overstated. However, that being said, in in sheer numerical terms, it's basically correct. There were around 250,000 Democratic voters. And if you look at the number of of delegates and superdelegates, about one superdelegate does work out to around 10,000 Democratic ballots. And so that received a mostly true. Mostly true, yes. Even though while I sometimes have an idea of where the ranking is going to be, I personally never put a suggested ranking in... Allow you and the Politifact brain trusts to make the final calls, um, and then
1: and that's why we make the big bucks.
0: Claire. That's right. That's right. Um, and then the other the other fact check was about Jennifer Horn claiming that the president had not nominated and the Senate had not confirmed a Supreme Court nominee in an election year for the past for more than eighty years. Correct, and this is actually untrue, given that Franklin Roosevelt had nominated in January of 1940 a justice for the court, and the Senate confirmed that justice also in in January of 1940, which, which was an would election be year,
1: 76 years,
0: which was 76 years ago, so not not quite 80. And and then the second part of her statement was that there was a bipartisan tradition of avoiding this, and, and this is this is simply not true. I mean, as an expert told PolitiFact, I mean, and there was an earlier check, to check by John Greenberg that covered much the same ground. Um, you know, Supreme Court justices aren't dumb. And they, they understand that if they retire in an election year, the, the open seat would likely become a political football. So as a result, they basically never retire in election years. And it's actually been very rare for the last hundred years for a ju- for a justice to die while on the court, which is what happened with Antonin Scalia. Um, so as a result, to say that there's some sort of bipartisan tradition is just what ha- what has happened because of the justices' choices. You know, and every time that a position has has come open, a president has made a nomination.
1: Right, which is I think a salient point there. Exactly. Which is every time there's been a vacancy in an election year, the president has in
0: fact. And the Senate has considered it. The Senate has not always approved it, but has considered it. Which is is a way that we have just kind of backed into the news
1: of what's been simmering in New Hampshire. So, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died. Mm -hmm. The Republican leadership in the Senate have said steadfastly that they will not consider an Obama nominee at all. Right. And that they want the next president, whoever that may be, to put forward the nominee that will be considered by the Senate. Among those Republicans that
0: are in that camp is our own Kelly A. And she was very early mm-hmm. in kind of stating her opposition to President Obama naming anyone.
1: Mm-hmm. Thus, Jennifer Horn talking about the United States Supreme Court issues as a way to back up Kelly Ayotte's position on this. Mm -hmm. So Ayotte has faced uh, criticism from her opponent, Maggie Hassan, our governor. And it's interesting, earlier this week, Clay, you and I were talking about the fact that Hassan and Ayotte both had press releases within minutes of each other. Hassan saying Ayotte should do her job well, actually, uh, so New Hampshire voters want Kelly Ayotte to do her job. And then within minutes comes from the Ayotte camp, New Hampshire voters thank Kelly Ayotte for doing her job. And so what, in fact, is their job? And so that's right. a, it's such a pejorative term here is like the job is either going forward with the nominee or holding to your convictions that a lame duck president shouldn't be the one to put forward the nominee.
0: Although, to be fair, one of the things that has kind of gone by the wayside in this entire argument is what the term lame duck actually means. Um, a lame duck president has traditionally been used to describe a president who is in office between the election and the, the, the inauguration of, of their successor. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, from November to like January... You know, that three-month period is when a president would be considered a lame duck.
1: But by many, by many factors, Obama was considered a lame duck as soon as he was sworn into a second term. (laughs) Well, yes. It's an interesting term, lame duck. I mean, because couldn't a lame duck just fly? Well, I have a chicken coop at home, and I have several ducks, and I actually have a lame duck. Oh, you do? I do.
0: How is the duck faring? Fine. Happy is happy as a duck. So that's the thing, you know, perhaps being a lame duck isn't such a it's, such a problem. It's got a bad wing. I and see. so
1: uh, you know it 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 can kinda of flap it, but it doesn't flap as vigorously as the non lame wing. So technically I have a lame duck. Right. Well
0: how appropriate. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and you know you you're talking about uh the the Hassan and Ayotte race which is still kind of in its its early stages i feel like we haven't seen you know a great deal of of direct campaigning from either candidate yet although i believe uh Kelly Ayotte put out her first tv ad within the last month it, it featured her daughter mm-hmm. on a basketball court but we have seen some movement in the in the uh race to replace Maggie Hassan mm mm-hmm. mhm well, Manchester Mayor Ted Gatzes
1: who had been critical of Hassan, he has announced that he's going to run on the Republican side. So the mayor of the state's largest city going to run. Um, State Senator Jeannie Forrester has also announced that she's running. Has she
0: actually announced that she's uh, running?
1: Actually, so I'm sorry, there was a leak that she's going to announce that she's running, so she hasn't officially announced. So it's a, uh,
0: an announcement that she's going to announce. I see, and this is this is all on the Republican side, mm-hmm. and uh, and Jean Shaheen's daughter Stephanie Shaheen announced that she would not announce, a run, which also
1: generated news.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So at this point on the Democratic side, you have Colin Van Osten, who's an ex- uh, executive counselor, you have. Uh, Mark Connolly, former regu- state regulator, Ayotte, as
1: well, is facing her an, a uh, primary challenger,
0: Jim Rubens. That's right. Although he's not necessarily challenging her from the more conservative direction, which no. is the, which is the kind of what some of the chatter has been about mm-hmm. uh, around from folks like William uh, Bill O'Brien mm-hmm. and the like.
1: Um, and then in the second congressional district. Brookline State Representative Jack Flanagan has announced that he has created an exploratory committee,
0: exploratory campaign. Yes. Well, he's he and and I uh, attended his press conference a couple of weeks ago, and he basically makes no bones about it that he's he's running for the seat currently held by Annie Custer. Mm-hmm. Although I think most people don't give him. Uh, the greatest odds mm-hmm. at, at picking that seat up. Mm-hmm. Um probably most of the more of the action is going to be over in District One with the scandal plagued rep Frank Ginta and his eternal challenger, Carol Shea Porter. Because who who doesn't want to watch like a fourth or fifth, whatever it is up to at this point now? Isn't it kind of like between- watching Rocky V it's 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 kind of. You know, the first four were okay, but five was just too many. But then you know they they rebooted they, they rebooted the franchise and Creed was right. excellent. Mm-hmm. So, but you know that's only but that that would be the Stephanie chain analogy. <laughs> She's not running, but they still had Rocky in it. They still mm-hmm. had Rocky in it, so you know you'd have to have one of them somehow
1: mm-hmm.
0: play a role, maybe an advisor. That being said, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of analysis about this, but certainly the, you know, the announcement of someone like Ted Gatsis, um, you know, in terms of running for for governor, I mean, that's, he's going to be a formidable figure Mm -hmm. in this race. I mean, as you point out, you know, mayor of the the state's largest city, I mean, he's been a player in Republican circles for a long time Mm -hmm. in terms of gravitas. And kind of name recognition to the extent that anyone has name recognition in the race. You know, you have to say he's in a pretty commanding position. It's it's interesting to me, at least looking on the Democratic side, that there's no kind of, you know, Maggie Hassan was very much, you know, the heir apparent to John Lynch mm-hmm. when, she, when she ran. And it doesn't feel like, at least at this point, that there's someone like that on the Democratic side. You know, Colin Van Osten is is much younger and I don't know if people really remember much about Mark Connolly.
1: Colin Van Ostrand had a uh, a video, an ad that came out. It was somewhat humorous, very kind of interesting. I'm not sure if you saw it. No. Um, his family's in it, a lot of friends in it, some co workers. Um, he's got two young boys, and at the end of the ad, they're like smashing their, their toys into each other as young boys are often. <laughs> They'll often do. So that was kind of funny. But everyone in the, he used to work for Stonyfield Yogurt. So mm-hmm. one of the themes of the ad is everyone's everyone's eating yogurt throughout the ad. It's just just a, you know, oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's fun. It's not bad.
0: No, you wanted to talk about Medicaid expansion. Well, now, you know, after after you were less than enthusiastic about talking about this topic during the podcast, but I just For me, the Medicaid expansion was interesting because in a lot of states across the country, Medicaid expansion has become kind of a stand-in for, you know, Republican legislatures fighting against Obama and fighting against the Affordable Care Act. And so, you know, you've seen a lot of state legislatures, you know, reject federal funding to expand Medicaid to cover more low-income households. Um, But gradually, as the years have gone by, a few more have adopted it. You know, in New Hampshire, it was a big battle to get it approved the first time. And um, so when it came up, you know, and it was a two-year approval, basically. So when it came time to, to renew the program, you know, I personally at least expected there to be, you know, some real battle lines drawn. But what was surprising to me was that it, it seemed to pass through the house relatively unscathed. Um, I guess the biggest issue was that they they inserted a severability clause, which meant that if the federal government found like some parts of the law couldn't be applied, th- the law would still stand. And the speaker of the house, Sean Jasper, actually cast the deciding vote in favor of that severability clause, which mm-hmm. I guess some people feel could cost him politically, but he just felt like he needed to needed to do. It, it almost feels like you know, given that Maggie Hassan is is not going to be governor <laughs> after November. You know, she's now in in the Senate race. It just feels like there's less enthusiasm in the legislature, maybe, for just crossing swords with her. You know, and instead, just an appetite to just move on and get stuff done.
1: Or crossing swords with the the state's hospitals and healthcare facilities, for whom Medicaid expansion is a giant piñata of cash. It's true. So, philosophically, you can be a conservative and hate the Affordable Care Act and want to reject Medicaid expansion, but when it, it creates a, a virtual grab bag of money for your state, how do you say no? Right.
0: Well, and all, but also, I mean, to, to be fair, you can, you can put it as a grab bag of money or you can just say that the, you know, the hospitals aren't losing as much money. Last in terms, I checked, in terms of hospitals are not gain. losing any money. Right. Well, but I mean that's because you can you can charge to make up deficits. But the, the question is who you're charging to make up those deficits mm-hmm. for. So, health insurance—it's boring. I personally find it interesting, but uh, there's a lot of elements to it. What else, John? Drugs. Drugs, yes. I did want to. We, we talked about the fact check that that Allie Morris did, right?
1: Uh, from a political perspective, one thing that I see going on, and and you know, we joke and we have our fun here from time to time, but New Hampshire's in a in in a in a very difficult position. More people are dying from these overdoses. It's well documented, but from a political perspective, the the state state's elected officials are now trying to gener- approve more money to, to deal with this which then creates all these debates about how is the money best used and what I find interesting is now I see people trying to take credit for how much they're doing right? and I find that really insulting because so much more needs to be done when you do the smallest thing and you're ready to pat yourself on the back for fighting this thing, where were you four years ago, five years ago, when this thing was just was growing? It was emergent. This isn't something that just happened last year. Right. It just happened to be that last year, the last two years, we've set uh, records for the number of overdose deaths, and so now all of a sudden it's getting their button gear. But all these other issues in New Hampshire pale in comparison to me, to the 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 drug problem that we're having. And there are some good things going on. But Ray Duckler wrote a wrote a column about this kind of calling out the uh, the establishment, you know, Republicans and and Democratic leadership in the state saying is this the best you can do? And uh,
0: hopefully hopefully they paid attention. I mean, to me at least, I I look at that and I I just wonder, you know, where is the evidence at this point? that any of the legal changes that have taken place have actually affected overdose deaths at all. And as near as I can tell, there is no evidence that that's changed. Well, you're putting enough
1: Narcan in people's hands to stop, stop immediate deaths, or at least slow down the deaths. Right? If they can stick well, a needle in you while you're in the midst of an overdose, they might save your life. But it does nothing to address the root causes of the addiction. It does nothing to get that person clean, and it does nothing to get that person in treatment and eventual recovery.
0: Well, but, and, and, but I'm, I'm just even going to that first step. I don't think there's any evidence that even the first steps are happening yet you know i mean yes some legislation has been passed yes theoretically there's more narcan out there although i think we've also done some reporting that shows that it's harder to get the narcan available than than you know you know it doesn't just magically appear you know you have to have pharmacies dispense it and know how to dispense it um but you know it's it's my understanding from kind of state medical examiner reports that the the, the death rate has not been falling this year that it's still roughly you know, I mean, there's, they're still getting several reports a week. You know, last year was essentially a person a day. Mm-hmm. And so to me, until you begin to get reports from, you know, like the state medical examiner and such, that it's like, wow, we've had a whole week and, you know, we haven't had any reports of this. You know, then you can begin to say, well, we've dealt with the emergency side of it. But but I don't think that anyone can can confidently say that yet. So... Um, so yes, I mean I, overall, though I, I do agree with you. It's 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 ridiculously early at this point to start talking about you know I we we took care of the opioid crisis.
1: Well, it's not necessarily we solved it. It's we're working hard. Right. We're
0: doing everything
1: we can, which is also highly <coughs> well highly debatable. But so here's here here it is. Uh, earlier last last week, I think the CDC is r- legitimate news is made. They revised their their guidelines, their recommendations for when doctors should prescribe opiate painkillers. Right? Yes. That says basically we advise doctors to look for alternative methods first. Something over-the-counter, some alternative medicine. You know, hey, heck, really, maybe something that's not incredibly addictive. Right. In these guidelines because who 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 are they recommending against probably the one of the biggest money making industries in the world these guidelines are optional so in the m- meanwhile across the way the FDA is considering oxycontin for kids even better so what's really the root cause clay how is is more Narcan in New Hampshire going to solve this
0: problem, or
1: is is the is the solution
0: somewhere else? I think, frankly, a lot of it has to do with how we we talk about and treat chronic pain as well, which is a, which is a, a very large discussion. One of your fact checks to, to examined
1: yes. the United States consumption of painkillers and mm-hmm. specifically opiate based painkillers ninety seven percent of all those painkillers in the world are
0: consumed in the united states right and and to me, I think what 's most interesting is if you start digging into the scientific side of these things it's there's not there 's actually evidence that opioid painkillers don 't actually work very well for chronic pain they are they, they are not especially effective because all that we know about painkillers is is how they treat acute pain, but they 're especially effective. At generating revenue, well, and 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 you know, causing dependency, which is your, which is of course the larger problem. But that being said, we've crossed the thirty-minute mark of the podcast, which, to my mind, means that we've probably covered as much as we can and still had anybody listening at all to the end. We didn't even talk about town meeting, Clay. We didn't. Thank goodness. <laughs> but but anyway, John. Thank you. Thank you, Clay. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast series through iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to look for more upcoming episodes in months to come. Take care, and we'll see you soon.